The scriptures today are Mark 11, 1 to 10. We're also doing a short Old Testament passage from Zechariah 9 and then Philippians 2. So. First reading is Mark 11 verses 1 to 10 and can be found on page 868 of your Bible. Sorry, 869. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The second reading is Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 10 and can be found on 818 of your Bible. The coming of Zion's king. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend to the sea, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the third reading is Philippians 2, chapters 1 to 11, and can be found on page 1012 of your Bible. Imitating Christ's humility. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. Father God, as we come to this text this morning, we ask that you would speak to us. We thank you that your word is powerful and inspired and is life-changing. Draw us closer to you and more in the likeness of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, last weekend we watched a coronation of a king that was full of British pomp and ceremony. I had some fun doing a little bit of research into uh, some of the details. Did you know that the procession and the coronation cost the equivalent of 250 million New Zealand dollars? The incoming king, Charles, rode in a carriage, the Royal Diamond Jubilee State Carriage, that was pulled by six horses that involved another 200 horses behind him. They were groomed, they were trained, they were no doubt... Uh, every inch of them combed over by horse groomers. They were probably the top bloodlines in the country. And then he left in another coach, not the same one, another one, the Gold State Coach, which was worth $4 million with eight horses. His crown that was put on his head had 444 precious stones. Guess the value of that one? $8 billion. $8 billion New Zealand dollars. His ascent to the throne involved music. There were 12 special musicians who were paid to compose music just for the event. There were over 2,000 people invited to the occasion in the actual service, but of course millions watched it from around the world on their television sets or on their phones or whatever other device. This was one glittering ascent to a throne, wasn't it? There's actually no one else alive who can relate. No one else can imagine what it would have been like for Prince Charles to be, or Prince Charles as Kezia calls him, uh, to be in that moment, other than his queen. But even she had a, had a different upbringing to her, him. Except the only one person was, would probably have been his mother, who of course is, is dead. And when we contrast that with the passage that we see today, we see a very different story, don't we? We see a very different procession. This is a text, of of course, which is usually uh, read and preached on on Palm Sunday. But this year, we were busy eating roast lamb and having our Passover meal when it was was Palm Sunday. So we didn't read this passage. And actually, as we've been tracking through Mark's Gospel, this is just where we're up to this week. So this is why um, we are preaching from this text. And as we've been tracking through Mark, the first half of the Gospel... Uh, as Graham said last week, was focusing on Jesus' identity as king. And in the second half, which is where this passage uh, falls, we've noticed Mark's changed focus to where Jesus is looking, we're looking at Jesus' purpose in his ministry here on earth, his dying on the cross. And in this procession to Jerusalem, this was part of his dying on the cross moment and being crowned as king. Remember, we've been asking three questions of the text as we've been coming to it. Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what should we therefore take away from it? And in this passage, all three questions revolve around the humility of God. In this passage today, we see a dramatic demonstration of the humility of Jesus. And in doing so, he points to how the kingdom of God operates. And therefore how we as the people of God are to be. 
Now, this is actually a super important story because it's in all four of the Gospels. Obviously, for all four writers, it was a significant enough event to put in. Jesus entering into Jerusalem is not just another parable, not just another story, but it's something clearly significant. Remember in the gospel up until this point, we've just before, just before this point, there's been some hard confronting conversations going on. What the kingdom of God is like, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God if you've got a really tight fist on money. James and John have that jostle for power. They both want to be sitting next to Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus is the only one who is actually, he's physically blind, but he can see Jesus for who he is. And then we get to this point where Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem with his disciples And he is again about to blow the categories of kingship apart from the disciples. It's another demonstration of the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. So so the disciples are walking through up to Jerusalem. He sends sends a couple of the disciples ahead and says, go to the village ahead of you, and he gives them instructions for how to find a cult. Uh, He tells them to bring it back. That's kind of interesting. Jesus is showing, we see a few glimpses of the majesty and the divine nature of God in this passage. We see the fact that he can see ahead. He can anticipate what the disciples are going to encounter. And he tells them um, what to do. I'm sure they were like, how did he know that was going to happen? And then the next thing, Jesus just puts a cloak on an unridden colt, on an unridden donkey foal, and sits on it. And then rides. Now, for any of you who knows know anything about horses, you can't just put a cloak or or a, anything on top of a horse that has never been ridden, sit on it, and then ride through a parade where people are raving, raving, waving branches and clapping and cheering. It is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> but Jesus is revealing that he is supreme over creation, and this donkey knows who he is carrying. It's pretty amazing. Uh, most donkeys need quite a significant amount of training. Now, this, this procession into Jerusalem is actually quite uh, culturally appropriate in that, for that day. It's kind of like the red carpet equivalent. You don't just throw your cloak on the floor for anyone, though, on the dusty, rocky road. You only throw it down for royalty, not for friends, not for family, not for anyone who you respect, only for royalty. So clearly there are people in the crowd who recognise the royalty of Jesus as king. Like Bartimaeus, they could see who Jesus was. And then, of course, uh, as Jesus and his disciples approach, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Now, we know on the other side of the cross that this procession of Jesus was was really important as he came to Jerusalem, not to defeat the physical power, not to defeat the Romans with physical power, but to defeat sin and death on the cross through his own death. A far greater oppressive power than the Romans could ever be. But for the audience back then, it would have been a head-scratching moment. Like, what's, what's going on? If this, this is this king that we've been waiting for. We can recognise his royalty, but why is he on a donkey? Jesus radically departs from the script of royal processions. Like Charles said back then, like then... Uh, Charles ascending to the throne, royalty 2,000 years ago approached also the throne with pomp and ceremony. If they were going to challenge the government, if they were going to overthrow someone, or if they were just going to take their throne, 
They rode on war horses, on powerful horses, but like Charles. He didn't ride on it, though, did he? Um, not an unbroken foal of a donkey. Donkeys, donkeys are actually surprisingly common in the Old Testament. As I started to look through, I saw them everywhere. Balaam, uh, remember there's a talking donkey? Uh, Balaam's donkey, God uses it as his mouthpiece. Abraham carries the wood up to uh, this, the hill where he was tested to sacrifice his son. There's a donkey there. And of course, this isn't the first time Jesus has ridden on a donkey. Remember when Mary was pregnant and Jesus was unborn, he was, oh, they were on a donkey. But why would Jesus choose as his entry steed Jerusalem into Jerusalem on his way to defeat sin and death? Why would he choose a donkey? Tom Wright, rather humorously, highlights the, juxta, the juxtaposition of the king of the universe riding a donkey. He says, here was Jesus Christ, the king of authoritative, miraculous power, riding into town on a steed fit for a child or a hobbit. What was Jesus doing? There are two important things that we see through Jesus' choice of riding a donkey. And the first is that Jesus is actually the prophesied king that the people have all been waiting for. When we look at Zechariah 9, thank you for reading that before, we see that he is the promised king. He is the promised Messiah. See your king comes to you, in verse 9, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is saying... Or in his actions, he is showing he is the promised Messiah. He is not just a prophet. He is not just a good teacher. He is the one that they have been waiting for. After 400 years of silence, God has heard his people and he has come to rescue them. And you can see through the way the crowd is shouting and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, they can see this. They are excited. Here is the liberator we have been waiting for. But the second thing that Jesus is doing is... When you look at the line, the king will come lowly and riding on a donkey, that word lowly is actually just as well translated as humble. So humble and riding on a donkey. Jesus is demonstrating something very powerful here. Here he reveals the upside down nature of the kingdom of God with a king who is humble. The humility of God is on display. Our God is a humble God. He's not out to impress. He doesn't need a $5 billion crown on his head. He doesn't need horses and gold chariots. He is a humble God who has taken on not only humble human flesh, but he came to be among us to suffer at the hands of his own creation, and he arrives on a donkey. He is showing his humility even in this entrance to Jerusalem. It is an act of humility within an act of humility. Paul unpacks the humility of Jesus for us in that third passage in Philippians 2. And if you want to just quickly turn to it again, it's page 1012 of your Bibles. Jesus Christ, in the very nature, God, did not consider, this is verse 6, equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Now that... Uh, word made himself nothing is the word from the Greek word kenosis, which means to empty oneself. 
So Jesus emptied himself for us. He laid aside his royal privileges and equality with God, and he came to be a human. In verse 7, Paul continues, He made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in human appearance, he humbled himself. He could have come as an equivalent of Prince Charles or King Charles, but he came as a servant and he walked with us and he suffered with us and he allowed himself to be killed by us. There is no other king like Jesus. Jesus riding on a donkey shows he is the saviour king that they have been waiting for. But he also shows that he is a king like none others, none other. He is humble. Instead of a $4 billion crown, he has a crown of thorns. Instead of an ornate gown, his few clothes are torn to shreds and he hangs naked on a cross. Instead of sitting on a gilded throne, he hangs on a wooden cross for all to see and mock. So what does this humility mean for us? What do we take from this passage? I don't think it means that we're all supposed to go out and buy a donkey. Firstly, we are to be humble. Uh, Remember back in Philippians 2, verse 3 and 5, Paul says, In humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests. And in verse 5, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And what do we see here? Jesus Christ is humble. Therefore, we too must be humble. And in Peter, can I just have... In Peter 1 Peter 5, 5-6, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. It's there in black and white. God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. See, humility is not option for the Christian life. It is the only way to be as Jesus' followers. The requirement for humility is actually found throughout Scripture. I could have given you 20 references right here and not even gone particularly deep. God opposes the proud. Do you want to be opposed by God? It's a pretty hefty consequence for not being humble. So firstly, the first thing that we've got to take away from this is we've got to be humble as Christ was humble. But that begs the question, how do we humble ourselves? It's actually quite hard to humble ourselves. As one commentator writes, humility, maybe go back a slide, no, Yeah, sorry, I put them in the wrong order. As one commentator writes, humility is an inside-out virtue produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord rather than to others. This brings behaviour into alignment with this inner revelation to keep oneself from being self-exalting. For the believer, humility means living in complete dependence on the Lord with no reliance on self. Does that make sense? So let me explain it in a different way. As humans, we always have a tendency to look at others, don't we? And there is always going to be someone who is better than us and worse than us. If there's someone doing better than us, we look around and we're like, oh man, look at them, look what they're doing. We already we automatically feel anxiety. We feel insecure. We feel inadequate. We feel like we're not doing good enough. And that can really get us down. But then we're also always doing better than someone else. And we can kind of, oh, well, I'm not doing very well compared to them, but oh, look, if I just look around and look at, look at how they're work, living and look at how they're working and look at look what's going on in their life, oh, oh I, I'm doing okay. 
We can end up proud and puffed up. And we can feel a bit chuffed and possibly a bit smug. And the only way to avoid either of these positions, because let's be honest, none of us like anyone who's in either of this camp, feeling anxious or becoming proud, to avoid those two areas is, is to only is to look at Jesus, to compare ourselves to him. In the light of who Jesus is, we see two things. When we stand and compare ourselves to who Jesus is and then we, and we look at ourselves, we see two things. In the first, we are all epic failures. We are all sinners and there are things in our lives that we do not want to see. But the other thing we see is tremendous grace. At the same time, we see this radical love of the Saviour who in the face of our brokenness and our filth, the God of the universe humbled himself and he died in our place. And if this doesn't humble us, nothing will. We need to see both because if we don't see the grace, we just feel like a failure and then life's not worth living. But if we only see the grace, we are not compelled to live in humility. We need to see both. And spending time with the Lord will show us both. And this was a, this was a challenge to me this week, actually, to be honest. There is another church uh, who started four years ago, same time as us, with 12 people. So we started with about 25, 30. They started with 12. And this week, they got made from a branch church to a full-standing parish. Their numbers have gone from 12 to 1,000. And Graham and I are sitting there, and we're like, what are we doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? And we started to feel depressed and anxious. and, And I was like, this is exactly what I'm preaching on. (laughs) I need to not compare what we are doing with what someone else is doing. Sure, we can learn from other people, but I need to compare myself to the Lord and remind myself that the Lord has asked us to be faithful and obedient, and that's all we can do, and he will do the rest in the right time. So that was a a good... God always teaches you the things that you have to preach. I'm not going to ask God to teach me... I'm not going to put myself down to teach on patience because I know that that's a lesson I'm not going to do so well on. We need to spend time meditating and reflecting and gazing on Jesus. And this is what we do when we come together to worship on a Sunday, isn't it? Through the worship, through looking at the word, through your own time with the Lord at home, reflecting on Jesus helps us to get into that place where we are only affected by what God thinks of us and not what others. Humility is a very attractive thing and the second thing that we can see is that this is actually the reason for humility is because it frees us when we live in humility it frees us it gives us the way to live in freedom if we're not comparing ourselves to others we don't get anxious we don't feel inadequate we also don't get puffed up and smug and people stop liking us because we're puffed up and smug it frees us from the expectations of others and ourselves when we only compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus, we live in freedom. It doesn't matter what other people think. And we can actually begin to live more radically gospel-shaped lives that people notice. Do you know when we live in anxiety and thinking about what other people think, we stop being missional because we're so worried about what other people think? There's a real-life example which I just heard recently. John Stott. Has anyone read anything from John Stott? He was a theologian and an author. He was once ranked among the top 100 influential people 
in the world, according to Time magazine. And apparently at one stage, he was earning $1 million in royalties just from his books each year. But he was a man who liked to live a sacrificial life, and he gave away 950000 of it. Obviously, we're like, wow, that's so amazing. And one person was so impressed that he walked up to him, and he made a mistake of saying, wow, you're so incredibly generous, and praising him. And I say mistake because this was Stock's response. If you knew my heart like Jesus did, you would spit in my face. So the person who said that to Stock was comparing Stock with the rest of the human world. And obviously Stock looked great compared to the rest of the human world because how many of us give away $950,000 a year? But the man probably felt inadequate putting himself next to Stock. And John Stock could have felt puffed up by this comment. Oh, yes, yes, I am very good giving away all this money. Instead, John Stott is someone who compared himself only to the sacrifice of the Lord, which gave him a true perspective on his heart and on the brokenness of himself and how much he needed God's grace. And it allowed him to to give out and to live in this sacrificial way because he knew God, his Saviour, had given everything for him. Living in humility and the freedom we experience is the beautiful consequence that Peter and Paul both speak about. That last part of Peter, can we just flip back to that slide where we, there's only three slides on this, hopefully you can find it. Yeah. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's a really familiar verse, cast your anxieties, but we're never given any context. And here we're given some context. When we live in humility, when we live in the way that God calls us to, we are able to cast our anxieties on him. And we see how much he cares for us. God, just as Paul writes in Philippians 2, God raised Jesus up. Jesus humbled himself and God raised him up and he does the same with us. And as I close, I'm just going to make one more comment about the humility of God. And that is the relatability of God through him being humble. Do any of us relate to Charles? Have any of us ridden in a gilded gold throne in a carriage, sat on a gilded throne, I should say? Has any of us lived a privileged life with all of the money and all of the dinner parties and waiting and servants? And Has any of us lived the life of tremendous privilege that he has lived? None of us can relate to Prince Charles, can we? We can only imagine. And then when we flip it on its head, can, can he relate to any of us? Has he ever had to cook a meal and get it on the table with screaming kids running around his legs? No, he just would have gone, kitchen, meal please. (laughs) If, If he had to do that even. He doesn't understand what it's like to be stressed out. and, um, I mean, I'm sure there are so many pressures for him and stresses and all sorts of things. And I know he hasn't had an easy life. But he doesn't understand our lives as everyday human beings. But our king and our God is radically different. His act of humility means we can relate to him. And he does relate to us. He came down and walked the earth as a man. Have you been lonely? Jesus was lonely. Have you felt oppressed? Have you been mocked? Jesus was oppressed and mocked. Have you been laughed at for what you believe? Jesus was laughed. For who he said he was. Have you felt abandoned? 
Jesus was abandoned. Have you felt the pain of the death of a loved one? Have you been rejected? I could go on. Jesus has felt all of those things. And I'm going to end with one more quote from John Stott, because it just sums it up so beautifully. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while I've had to turn away, and in imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. One more bit. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolises divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a distant God. With eyes closed and a smile playing about the sides of your mouth, But you care. You are a humble God. You got off your throne to come down and walk amongst us. Father, yet on the cross we see the amazing humility and at the same time the incredible majesty of who you are. Lord, the riches you hold far outweigh any carts and thrones and crowns that anything on this earth or anyone on this earth may have. But what's more, you invite us to join you within it. You hold it out to us to be part of. You invite us to be part of your family. Lord, help us to be humble as Christ was humble. Help us to only compare ourselves to who you are and who you say we are, not to the others around us. Lord, we want to be able to cast our anxieties on you. And not carry the burden of our worries. Help us to look at your face. But I just invite us to take a few moments to spend some time in quiet prayer now. Asking the Lord for areas in your life that you may need to humble yourself. Where are you comparing yourself to others? Is it your job? Is it your looks? Are they the achievements of your children? Is it your marriage or your relationship status? Let's just take a few moments to bring that to the Lord.